Let's move on to our ninth session together. And I want us to look at why revivals die prematurely and how they can be sustained. One of the biggest misconceptions concerning revival involves a false assumption concerning the sovereignty of God. Some people have the mindset, well, it's all God. And God is just going to do what God is going to do the way God wants it to do. And people have no role or responsibility in any of that. And that is a misconception. God is sovereign. And God, because He's God, can in fact do what He wants to do anytime He wants to do it. But beloved, the reality is, is God uses people. For whatever reason, God uses people. And because God is God and time means nothing to God, God is not going to get in a hurry. I mean, we're always in a hurry. We run our lives based upon our measurements of time. We're very time-oriented. I was in a service a while back, and the service was only scheduled to last an hour and 15 minutes from start, the whole thing, from start to finish. I was to be through in an hour and 15 minutes. I went over time. I went an hour and a half. Sixty-one people were at the front of the church getting saved. Most of them brand new believers praying a sinner's prayer. And people were upset that the meeting had gone 15 minutes too long. It's like it's an hour and 15 minutes. Sixty-one people, I'm sorry the train has left the station, go to hell. There's not time to take 15 more minutes to lead you in a sinner's prayer. I don't do that. I'm not going to do it. I saw John Kilpatrick's website recently of his church in Daphne, Alabama, and it's on the website. Our services last three hours. Just so anybody wants to check to see whether I want to go there or not, they put it right on the website. Our services go every meeting. They start at 10 and they go until 1 o'clock or longer. Just so you know before you come, don't come looking for the hour, 59-minute meeting because we're going to have a big three-hour meeting. And it may go longer than that. We don't make any guarantees. But we can promise you it probably will not go less than three hours. Maybe longer, but it won't go any less. I like that. A meeting doesn't have to go three hours. You understand that very well. But church, when God is moving, we just need to let Him do what He wants to do. It's just that simple. But God needs people, and it's the content of people's hearts. And when people are so preoccupied with agendas and plans and other things that they're interested in, church, that's the thing that stands in the way of the move of God in their heart. One of the big concerns that I have right now about our nation is we've been in revival now since the 1990s. But we've become so ingrown and it's all about me and I need another word for me. I need another anointing. I need to go to this conference to get the anointing and then I need to go to this other conference to get the double anointing and then I'm going to go to their conference and get the triple anointing, the quadruple anointing and I'm planning on next month going to this other conference where I'm going to get the quadruple anointing. And then after that, if I get the quadruple anointing, I'm breaking through into the unlimited anointing. 
Hello, I'm going to get the unlimited anointing. Well, what have you done with the anointing you've already got? I don't want to chase that rabbit too far into the briar patch this morning. But the concern that I have right now is what has to come to America? What has to come to this nation? Before the church gets away from this thing that we get up every morning and stand in front of the mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most anointed of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most spiritual of them all? And the church gets down on its face once again and realizes that we're nothing and He's everything and He's our lifeline and He's our lifeboat and He's our way out and He's the only thing that's going to fix this nation. What are we going to have to go through until we can have revival in this nation. I mean, we've been in the glory, the anointing, signs, wonders, miracles, healings, prophetic. We've had the whole buffet for all of these years. And yet the church is more goofy than it's ever been before. What's it going to take to bring us to the place of yieldedness and surrender and repentance where we take up our cross, we die to our own will, our own gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy, I'll take all you can gimme. And we take a stand for a greater cause, which is an intervention of heaven that turns a nation. What's it going to take for us to understand? What's it going to require before we get it? Is it going to be an economic collapse? Is it going to be swine flu or avian flu? Is it going to be drought? Is it going to be terrorism? I mean, what's it going to require before the church in America gets over itself and goes after God? And for some strange reason... In the sovereignty of God, God still needs people to cooperate with Him in revival. And when they don't, the revival can be aborted. When they do, the revival can be sustained. Now, here's an interesting thought for some of you taking notes. I believe today that revival has always been God's second choice. God's first choice is that the church stay vibed all the time and not have to be revived. The will of God, the heart of God is for the church to have a revelation of His glory, walk in faithfulness and holiness and passion and pursuit and resist the spirit of religion and forget the complacency and go after God. I mean, the greatest commandment in all the Bible is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, with all of your ability, with everything that you've got and all of your energy. And if we would only do that, if we would only do that, we would not need revivals because we would stay vibed all the time and not have to be revived. Most great spiritual awakenings last between 18 months and three years. But after that, the church runs in the afterglow of what God did for years or decades to follow. But the actual revivals themselves, the actual awakenings themselves, usually seem to follow a pattern of about 18 months to three years, and then it begins to wane. It begins to diminish And the church lives on that revelation and lives on that glory for years to come. Now, people can create a spiritual wall that shuts God out, or they can create a void that brings His presence based upon the content of their heart, the hunger, the hunger in their hearts. 
I mean, we can go to India. We can go out to the nations and go to the meetings and see great miracles of healings. I mean, we've seen amazing miracles and healings. Why do miracles and healings happen in the nations in a greater measure than what we see in the American church? Now, we've seen miracles and healings to God be all the glory over the years of God doing wonderful things for people. But why is it all magnified? Why does it grow exponentially in some of these areas? Is it somehow the sovereign will of God that God will just decide, well, I just love healing people in India more than I love healing people in America? No, God's no respecter of persons. But what brings the healing power of God is the faith and expectancy, hunger and desperation. The compassion of God responding to the needs of broken, hungry people that come to Him looking and seeking help that He does not send them away. Why don't we see it in the American church in the way that we hear it in the nations? I believe it's because of complacency and the lack of hunger. I was in a Benny Hinn Partners Conference back some months ago. I guess it was last December. And Benny Hinn, I mean, was just in a mood that night. I mean, Benny can get in a mood sometimes. And he just said he wished he could spend all of his time just going to the nations, doing crusades to the nations. Not even do meetings in the American church. But he said we do meetings in the American church because the American church finances the ministry to go to the nations. And God moves. God moves in America in a wonderful way. But he just shared how that they would see God doing so much greater things when he went out to the nations around the world than over the miracles that they see in America, the healings that they see in America. And it was not that God loved this group more than that group or he would do more in this place than he would in that place. It was the content of the hearts of people and the hunger. And so you see, God never changes. He's always constant. He always remains the same. But it's people, it's your heart and my heart that act like governors in our lives that determine. We're like valves that open wide or open just a little bit that allow the flow of God to us because of the contents of our hearts, our attitudes, our values, our walk with God, our holiness. It's not about works righteousness. No one is suggesting such. But it is a factor as it relates to hunger and thirst and desperation and the willingness of people to receive. I mean, many people are just totally happy to go with religion more than intimacy and relationship. And God sees hearts. One of the most puzzling things in our ministry over the years is God has sent us out. Is so many times we would go to one church and have a good meeting, but then go to the next church and have a great meeting. And go somewhere else and have a fabulous meeting. And then go somewhere else and have another good meeting. Why the variations between the two? Is it John? I don't think so. Is it God? I know it's not God. I'll just say this. I'll just go ahead and say it. The most difficult meeting that I ever have, and that's not including this church and this house. We have had phenomenal meetings here every time that we've ever come to be with you over the years. 
Why? Because that's the content of your heart. But the most difficult meeting for me to preach in and minister in, in most churches, like 90% of the places I go, is the Sunday morning service. Why? Because the Sunday morning service is filled with people that they just want to drive by church. That's what we do on Sunday morning. That's where we're going to go. We're not really hungry. We're not really thirsty. It's Sunday morning. I'll feel guilty if I stay home. I don't have any excuse. Be good to see everybody again. I need to go by church. Many times Sunday morning church, it's like trying to suck peanut butter out of a jar with a straw. It's just dead. I mean, I really thought for a while I'd just quit going to churches on Sunday morning. We'd just start meetings on Sunday night and let the crowd that was there on Sunday morning stay home because they're not going to come anyway. You know, when you go to a church on Sunday morning, you know, all you're going to do is whet the appetite of the hungry and make those that aren't mad. And so just save the energy, save the plane ticket, save the pain and discouragement of trying to trudge through, trying to suck peanut butter out of a jar because of the attitude, hard attitude of people that are just kind of sit there well, we better get this over because I'm telling you the line down at the all-you-can-eat buffet is going to be out the door if I don't get it. I mean, we got to get out of here. Those Baptists are going to beat us to the buffet and going to eat up all the pie. I mean, I mean, they're not going to have the selection of pie. We don't get out of here and beat them down there. I mean, church for a lot of people is just the warm-up before the buffet. It's just the get-ready before the pie. The ice cream machine. You know what I'm talking about? And God sees that. God sees the heart attitude. And the heart attitudes of people is the governor. It operates like a valve that turns the river on or turns the river off. Acts chapter 10 is a prime example of that. The house of Cornelius. They were so desperate. They were so hungry. God could do anything. They didn't care. They just wanted it. And I mean, God didn't even wait for Peter to get through preaching the gospel to them. God just ripped open the heavens, poured out His glory, and they all got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, they never sang, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. They never bowed their little heads, closed their little eyes, raised their little hands, walked down the little aisle. They never went to the discipleship program. They never got baptized in water until after they'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Who's ever heard of such? Why did that happen? It was the heart of God responding to the hunger in the heart of Cornelius and those gathered at his household. How can revival fire be extinguished? How does it happen? Well, the first way is people prefer the spirit of religion over the spirit of God. Jeremiah 2.11 that you've already referenced there is a prime example. People will prefer the spirit of religion over to the spirit of God. Why is that preferable? The reason it's preferable is the spirit of religion is always predictable and it is controllable. The spirit of religion is always predictable It is controllable. Everybody's got a plan. Everybody knows what's going to happen next. I mean, I'm not criticizing anybody because we've all been seduced by this. And we've all fallen into this. But when I was a United Methodist pastor, we had a church bulletin every Sunday morning. 
that was printed up. We had a prelude that came before we did anything else. And then we had a call to worship. And then we had the responsive reading. And we had the Apostles' Creed. And I mean, I had a list. I had more notes every Sunday morning when I was a pastor in the Methodist Church than I have to teach this course to you on revival. And the interesting thing of it is we had to get from the prelude in the beginning to the postlude at the end in 59 minutes and everything that came between it. We had to get it all in there. Well, why is the spirit of religion so preferable? Because it's all programmed. It's all nice, neat, packaged. I mean, you can drop off to sleep in the middle of the thing halfway through, take a little power nap, wake back up, pick up the paper, and you know right where we are. I mean, the bulletin was like a church GPS. I mean, you could see your position relative to 12 o'clock at any moment in time. I mean, within a couple of seconds, it was all right there. Well, that's why people go after the spirit of religion over the spirit of God many times. And because of that, revivals can be restricted and can be shut down and closed down and aborted. The second reason revival fire can be extinguished is the lack of reverence for the Holy Spirit. Remember Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus and how God told him, take off his shoes for the ground on which he stood is holy. Revival is a holy thing. In the day that we lose our amazement with revival and our fascination with the glory of God and the manifest presence of God, in revival is the day that it ends. When revival becomes ho-hum, We've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. When revival takes on that attitude in our heart, it stops because we're failing to appreciate. We're no longer valuing the holy work that God is doing in our midst. And so when God sees it not respected, God begins to take it away. The third reason revivals are extinguished is people's need to control it and manage it and manipulate it, and run it. That's why it usually takes about 18 months to start to get a pretty good leash on a revival and start making the revival do and be and become what we want it to do and be and become. It starts out just a raging fire of the presence of God. I mean, look at the Cane Ridge Revival of 1800, the account that I read to you in an early section about what was going on. All these thousands and thousands of people out there in the night, in the day, in a valley in Kentucky. I mean, no buildings, no organizations, just mass chaos. Power of God just sweeping people down in mass by the thousands. People falling and getting carried away. People stumbling over bodies in the middle of the night of people that were out in the spirit. All the wild stuff that was going on in those days in Cane Ridge. That was chaos of sorts, but it was God. But when they finally got it under control and got it lined up and cleaned it up and dressed it up and made it pretty and got it organized, it was dead. And so man's need to control revival will more often than not be one of the things the enemy uses to bring it all to a halt. The fourth reason is the exploitation of the glory of God for personal gain. When people start to franchise revival, when revival becomes a means of making money, 
God doesn't send revival to help people's book sales. God doesn't send revivals so people can take up offerings. There's nothing wrong with selling books. I mean, I never wanted to write a book. Now I've written five. I don't think I've ever made a dime on any of it. I mean, we've given away more than we've ever sold. But our books, we don't do that as a business. I mean, my greatest joy is to hear back, like I did recently, you know, a pastor had gotten a hold of the copy of the revival book, had preached the revival book, read it 13 times, started preaching it in his church, and revival broke out in his church. That's what thrills me, not that somebody bought a $15 book, but revival came to the church. That's what these books are for. It's not to sell somebody a $15 book. I want to see revival come. That's our heart. But revivals will die when people try to make it into a commercial enterprise and hype it up and stir it up and try to drum it up in order to exploit people for financial gain. That'll kill it every time. And that's what's happened many times. The next reason that revivals die are people no longer sorrowful concerning sin. The lack of repentance in revival. When a revival no longer highlights the need for people to change, for people to turn, when a revival no longer teaches the message that is found from Genesis to the book of Revelation of God being a holy God and He wants people to come after Him and be willing to change and turn from their wicked ways, when revival does not carry that component within it any longer, that's a revival that is doomed to end. The next reason is the lack of prayer and fasting. People will pray and fast for years and years and years, and then revival comes, and it's like, well, we don't have to do that anymore. And the fire that was ignited has no fuel then to run on, and it begins to wane. I remember years ago going to Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London, Charles Hatton Spurgeon, a man that God used in a profound way in England. About a year ago, I actually visited the grave where Charles Hatton Spurgeon was buried. The cemetery was near where I was staying, and the pastor took me there to see Spurgeon's tomb where he was buried. And I was amazed at the grave, a big sepulcher kind of a thing. And with Charles Hatton Spurgeon's name and what he had done and his birth date and his death date, but on the side of Spurgeon's tomb in the cemetery in London, England, is a message from Charles Hatton Spurgeon to anybody that came through the cemetery that read it. I mean, Spurgeon wanted this on his grave, and it was there for everyone to read. It says, I'm not here. I'm having a wonderful day. So I'm paraphrasing. I'm having a wonderful day in heaven today and in the glories of God in heaven. And here's how. And then he gives the gospel. And no doubt there are going to be people in heaven one day that were just walking through a cemetery in London and came to the tomb of Charles Hatton Spurgeon and found a man that gave them a message from the grave of where he was and about the gospel and Jesus and the cross and the blood and how to be born again. They're probably going to be in heaven one day, people that will be found there that, well, what was your testimony? I was mowing the grass in a cemetery, had a weed eater and was going around some graves. Came up on a grave with a message from a dead man. I read it about the love of God and the cross and Jesus. Charles Hatton Spurgeon was used by God to touch England. 
And I remember going to Spurgeon Tabernacle on the Thames River in downtown London. The person that was giving us the tour said, we're going to take you downstairs and show you the power plant. And I think, why do we want to see a power plant of Spurgeon's ministry and tabernacle? And downstairs beneath the sanctuary where Spurgeon preached was what looked to be like a large fellowship hall. And they said every time Charles Hatton Spurgeon was up there preaching, there was a crowd of almost 500 people down here praying and interceding for the revival. Prayer went on in this room 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Three to 500 people were down there praying while Spurgeon was the floor above preaching. And that was the reason for the power in Spurgeon's meeting. We have a group of prayer partners that pray for our ministry. A couple of them are here today. They pray for our ministry on an ongoing basis. It's not a newsletter that I send out. It's only about 50 people located in four countries. I communicate with them weekly. They're praying for us here in this school. They pray for our ministry on an ongoing basis that God will come and God will bless. The day I don't have any prayer partners is the day I quit because we depend upon prayer. We have nothing else. I mean, church, if God doesn't show up, it's over. The lack of prayer and fasting. Another reason is complacency. Complacency. Another one is sin in the hearts of God's people. And another one is when people say it's over. One of Charles Finney's most famous quotes is a revival's over whenever people say it's over. Whenever people say, well, it's over now, well, it's over now. In our meetings over the years, that's the reason I don't give benedictions or dismissals at the end, is I don't get up and blow a horn or blow a whistle and say, well, meeting's over, everybody go home. Because what we've discovered I mean, I prayed for so many years. I said, God, if you ever come to church, I'll never run you out. And when he came in 1993 and revival began in our meetings everywhere God has sent us, I've never ended a service since 1993. If you wait to hear me tell everybody, well, you can go home now. Well, you're going to have to wait a long time because if God comes, and he's been in every meeting since then, I don't end the meetings. I just tell people you can leave whenever you want to leave. Just take your liberty. Just go. I mean, at any point, you can come at 7 o'clock, you can leave at 7.05. It's fine with me. You can stay all night. I don't care. If God's ministering to you, don't stop it. But revivals will end whenever people say it ends. When people say it's over, it's over. And I've watched people do that. I've watched churches do that. They say, well, we've been in revival. We've had great revival. We've had a great visitation of God. Now it's time to move on. Move on where? Move on to what? I mean, you kind of hear in my heart, but I want to know, move on to what and move on to where that's better than the manifested presence of God in church. I mean, I'd rather go to the dentist for an all-night root canal than go to church and there'd be no sense of the presence of God there. I mean, the reason most people in America don't go to church is they've already been. They came looking for the reality of God, and when they didn't find Him, they went somewhere else. The occult, witchcraft. New age. All these people are looking for is the reality of supernatural experiences. And when the church, oh, well, we had that once, but now we've moved on. No, you haven't moved on. You've just moved to the garbage can and crawled in the plastic back and reached up and tied a knot in the top and rolled your way out to the street waiting on the garbage truck to come pick you up. I mean, it has no value. A church with no glory, a church with no anointing, a church with no presence of God in it is like a pizza hut with no pizza in it. 
It's like McDonald's without a Big Mac. It's like a boat without a bottom. I mean, what value does it have? And so revivals end when people say they're over. Now, I'm getting ready to say something very profound. It's very, very deep. You will remember this forever. Take a deep breath. Get ready. Here it comes. We're going to talk about briefly how to sustain revival. Are you ready for a deep revelatory truth right from the throne room of God? The best way to sustain revival is don't stop it. The best way to sustain a revival is just don't stop it. Don't go out and build a broken cistern and try to have a new and improved way of doing things over what God's doing. That's what God rebuked Israel for through Jeremiah is they had forsaken him, the river of living water, and had gone out and built cisterns that they could substitute for that. The best way to sustain revival is just don't stop it. Don't end it. Don't shoot it. I mean, my family was at Brownsville in Pensacola on the fifth anniversary of revival when the deacons of Brownsville Assembly of God, unbeknowings to John Kilpatrick, They came to present him with a plaque on the fifth anniversary of the Brownsville Revival that had the dates of when the revival started and that date representing five years. And John Kilpatrick stood right there in front of the TV cameras and thousands of people there. He said, gee, it's really a nice plaque, but revival's not over. I mean, you've given me a plaque that looks like an obituary. You know, it was born on this day. It died on this day because there was a large contingent of people that just wanted it to get over. I mean, my family was there in the Brownsville Revival. In the height of the thing, I was on a trip somewhere, and my wife was sitting there. She was seated next to a woman that was a member of the church. This lady looked over at my wife and my three little kids that aren't little anymore, but looked over at her and said, where are you from? And my wife answered, and told her we were from Tampa. And she said, well, I guess you're here for the revival. And my wife said, well, our parents live in Pensacola. And every time we come to Pensacola, we always try to come to revival. The lady said, well, gee, that's really nice. And then the lady said these words. She said, we will be so glad when this is over so we can get our church back. What she was saying is we want this revival to end so all these people will go home so that I can come on Sunday morning, I can get a parking place near the door, I can come to the service and sit in the same pew that I've sat in for the last 25 years that has the little gold plate on the end of it that I bought, gave money to, dedicated to my godly grandmother that's in heaven, God rest her soul, that that's my place and I sit in it every Sunday morning and now I can't sit in my pew, I can't park in my parking place, the meetings go way too long, we got all these other people coming from everywhere else and we'll just really be glad when this whole thing blows over so we can get our church back. She's got it back now. She doesn't have a problem finding a parking place now. She's probably got the whole pew to herself now. Because there was a mindset that just wanted it to blow over so we can get our church back. And there's a mindset out there that when God moves, I mean, do you know why God sends revival? It's so He can get His church back. 
He wants all this stuff that we do to blow over so he can get his church back. But it will end when people want it to end. And the best way to sustain it is not stop it. The second thing, and I'm closing, the more we speak of revival, the greater its intensity becomes. Revival spreads at the speed of gossip. Revival spreads at the speed of gossip. That was what was so amazing and astounding about the Lakeland outpouring in April, May, June, and July of 2008 is the Internet. And because of technology, millions and millions of people all over the world were attending the Lakeland Revival every night, day and night, from every corner of the globe because of the technology of the Internet and God TV. His revival spreads at the speed of gossip. And when people talk about it, it engenders faith in others and it stirs hunger in other hearts. And the greater the hunger, the greater the anticipation, the greater the thirst, hello, the greater the intensity becomes. Because when God sees hunger, God responds to the hunger. When God sees apathy and indifference and take it or leave it, God withdraws from that. And there's something about the word being released when we speak, that there's an impartation. There's an impartation. There's a release. There's a release in the Spirit. I was in Karachi, Pakistan just a few weeks ago, and I'd never done anything like this before. But in the last night of the meeting, the Lord just gave me a very clear mandate that I was to get up and speak something similar to what Ezekiel did in Ezekiel 37 about the vision of dry bones. That I was simply to get up in front of a mass crowd of Muslims in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan with armed guards with guns standing to the left and right and in the crowd and begin to prophesy revival. And it was like, God, This is like really strange. I knew exactly what the Lord wanted me to do. And I got up and I told them what I was going to do before I did it. But I said, I want us to read carefully from the book of Ezekiel. And how God had showed Ezekiel this valley filled with dry bones. And the Lord had asked him a question. He said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? I mean, just bones scattered everywhere. And he said, Lord, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, only you know. And he said, Ezekiel prophesied to the bones. And Ezekiel began to prophesy life to the valley of dry bones. And suddenly all these bones began to vibrate and began to move. And the bones began to connect to each other, the foot bone to the leg bone to the hip bone to the back bone to the I mean, the bones began to come back into alignment and the bones began to join as skeletons and then the body began to be recreated and organs began to form and tissue and ligaments and tendons and skin began to form that so there was a valley but it was no longer filled with dead Ben's bones but now it's filled with dead bodies before the eyes of Ezekiel. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, Can all this be alive, made alive again? And he said, I want you to prophesy to the winds. 
And wind in the Bible is always a reference to the Holy Spirit. And as he did, the wind of God, the breath of God blew over that. And all these dead bodies started standing up alive again. And when the last one had stood, Ezekiel described it as a great and mighty army. And I thought, Lord, what in the world? And I just began to read that scripture and began to speak it aloud with my mouth. Now, this was not a John thing. John had nothing to do with any of it. God wanted those words to be spoken out. He wanted those words to be released in that meeting, that last night of meetings. I spoke it out, and then I heard myself saying, and I don't go doing these kind of things very often. I mean, some people, they're just prophesying just like this all the time, got a prophetic word. I don't do that. But there are times that I do prophesy, and when I know that it's God, I do. And we see God do wonderful things. And I begin to hear the Lord saying through me, speaking it to the people, that there's coming a wind of life of God upon the bones of the church of Pakistan and of that city, of what has been laid barren for a long time and is now dead and gone and cast away and ignored and is left for gone in the heat of the desert sun. That God is going to begin to breathe upon it again. And he's going to cause the body to begin to come back. I mean, I just feel God all over me just telling you the story. And how God's going to start to reassemble and rebuild the body. And how he's going to breathe life into it again. And how an army is going to begin to stand. And how you'll begin to see it in the next six months. That it will begin in the next six months. And how God was going to bring missionaries from China. And bring missionaries out of Africa to that nation. I had no connection to China. I'd never thought of such a thing as Chinese or Africans coming to that nation. I found out later that people from Pakistan and China, there's a connection there and that Africans, because of the Muslim background of many African nations, that Africans come there and how God was going to begin to bring people out of Africa and out of China and how they were going to begin to come to Pakistan and how God was going to begin to rebuild and was going to begin to reestablish and breathe life and how it was coming in the next six months. Well, I got through saying that And the moment that the last sound came out of my mouth of that prophetic word, there was an explosion of gunfire. There was an explosion of automatic gunfire that would have been maybe a city block away. But it was just bam, 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 bam. I mean, automatic weapons firing. At the very moment that I got through saying that word, I saw that as a prophetic thing that it was like the word of the Lord had just been released in the powers of darkness. Now, this wasn't something that happened in the spirit, okay? I mean, there were bullets flying. There was gun shooting. I mean, people were like this. I mean, my security guys grabbed their guns, and then they realized it was down the street somewhere. I mean, this is not some spiritual thing. I mean, there were guns firing. It was at that very moment, and I knew that that was significant because it was like the word of the Lord had just come, and it was like all the powers of darkness were saying, no, we're going to kill it, and we're going to shoot that thing down, not without war, and to come to what God had just spoken. I knew that that was a reaction, and so I just sat down, and my brother that was traveling with me, Pastor Rick Smale, He and I had been alternating meetings. He would preach one, I would preach 
because we had like 12 meetings in four days and he would do one, I would do the next, he would do one, I'd do the next. And so he was going to preach. And I had brought that word and I'd taken maybe 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes, to bring that word from Ezekiel and to the people. We'd had all that gunfire. And I just sat down on the platform and Rick got up to preach and he told everybody, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter whatever. I've forgotten what he said. And everybody there in the meeting began turning in their Bibles to the book of Matthew. And yet in that moment, I heard his voice clearly say, turn to John chapter 14. I mean, everybody else heard Matthew. I mean, Matthew and John don't rhyme. Chapter 8 and chapter 14 don't rhyme. I heard clearly turn to John chapter 14 verse 29. And Rick and everybody else there had gone to Matthew chapter 8 for something else. And I looked at John 14, 29, and I read these words where Jesus said, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I have told you before it comes, so that when you see it with your eyes, then you will believe. And I just closed my Bible. And I knew that moment that whatever it was that God had just said, He was going to do something. He was going to do something in Pakistan. He was going to do something. We got on the plane and came home the next day. All hell broke out against us. Physically and spiritually, financially, every other way. It was retaliation from those meetings over there. Same thing happened to the people and that were uh, the leaders that were part of I mean, it just all hell broke out. I mean, I'd hardly gotten home and Mustag was calling me on the phone. I mean, he was just sucking dirt. I mean, everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. The Bible school just gotten kicked out of the building that they'd been meeting in for three years. The ministry van had just blown up the motor. This one was upset. That all this I mean, just a deluge of hell had come against him. He was just discouraged. And I said, well, brother, you know, we've made great damage to the kingdom of darkness, and this is retaliation. It'll be all right. God's going to move. Well, he called me back seven days later. The glory of God had come, and breakthrough had come. And suddenly they were having incredible breakthroughs of things that they'd prayed for for years and years and years and years began to be happening in that ministry. God began to move and revival fires. I mean, that was just a few weeks ago. It continues to this day. And so we're ending now. But I'm saying this to you. When you speak about revival, and we preach about revival, and we pray about revival, and we welcome the presence of God and the glory of God, there's something about us cooperating with the sovereignty of God, releasing what God wants to do that brings about the revelation of what God's doing. Amen?